Well, join me in John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, we have sung songs that is well with our soul. We've sing, sung songs of trust in our Lord, his sovereignty. It certainly leads into this passage that we've been in for a number of weeks, John chapter 14, and we are coming to verses 25 and 26. John 14, 25 through 26, where we read a monumental promise from Jesus. Start in verse 25, let's read the text. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But, here's the promise, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The last few months, we have delved into the many reasons Jesus gives in this chapter as to why we as believers need not let our hearts be troubled. Even though our world is filled with sin, and even though disappointments are inevitable and uncertainties are sure, Jesus is clear back in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Verse 27, do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. This is one of the most precious promises for every believer, that even though the troubles are in the outside world, those troubles need not become the inner turmoil of our hearts. 47 times throughout the scriptures you find this command. 47 times, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Genesis 43, be at ease. Do not be afraid. Exodus 20, do not be afraid. 47 times that refrain rings throughout the scriptures. To which we could add similar commands such as do not be shocked nor fear. Do not tremble. Do not be worried. Be anxious for nothing. Cast all your anxiety on him. And we could give many other examples to that list. Over and over again, we are reminded, do not be afraid. Be at ease. Necessary reminders, why? Because the Bible is also clear. Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Or Job 14, man is short-lived and full of turmoil. We live in a fallen world. Hurt is an everyday reality. Disappointment is a constant theme. Heartache is both universal and personal. This is why Paul writes in Romans 8, the whole fallen creation groans, it mourns, grieves, while it waits for its redemption and suffers the pains of childbirth. This is personification of this fallen planet because sin has run roughshod over this world and sin has affected every part of it. Even the planet is frustrated 
and disturbed. Even the planet is waiting and groaning for things to change and perfection to come. And so it is with us. We too groan, don't we? We groan for our griefs to be replaced with lasting joy. We too suffer heartache, waiting for our tears to be wiped away forever. Believers are not immune to the heartaches and fears of this world. And in John 14, Jesus' apostles are case in point. Fear has gripped them. Outside trouble has become inner turmoil. Uncertainty and doubt have overtaken them. How are they going to survive once Jesus leaves them? That's the question on their minds. How will they survive? How are they going to remain faithful in a world of chaos and disorder? And you can even add to that, John 15, how are they going to remain faithful in a world that will be filled with persecution and hatred? Is an untroubled heart even possible? There's the question. Is an untroubled heart even possible? Well, John 14 says, yes. It is definitely possible for the believer. Inner peace in the midst of heartache, can be experienced. But look at verse 27. The peace I leave with you, the peace promised by Christ to his people, my peace I give to you, notice, is not as the world gives. Our peace is different. The believer's peace does not come by circumstances being changed. That's how the world gives peace. But Jesus' peace, a better peace, a more lasting calmness and assurance, that comes not by removing us from trial, but by sustaining us through trouble. It's peace through faith. It's peace through lasting and glorious and profound promises that we can cling to while in the midst of trouble. Promises this world can never take away, never take away. And that is what we have seen throughout this chapter. Jesus gives his apostles 12 heart-calming promises that they can cling to once he leaves them. He's leaving them for the cross and then for heaven each promise offering a reason why the Christian need never let our hearts become overwhelmed with fear and doubt and sorrow. And this morning we come to promise number eight. Promise number eight. And before I give you this promise, let me lead into it by having us think through perhaps the most common way we respond to personal pain in trying times. Most common way, perhaps. What is so often our fallen knee jerk response to trouble? And I would suggest that it is to question God's goodness. To question God's goodness. To doubt God's faithfulness. To wonder can God be trusted? 
to ask, is God actually the good God he claims to be? Is he truly the faithful God who only works for the good of his people? Is all of that true? It's easy for the hurts of our world to cause us to forget who God truly is. It's easy to let the pain of this world distract us from the promises and assurances we have been given. You know the question, why God? We've all asked it, why God? How could you allow this to happen, God? I thought you loved me, Lord. Jesus knows this will be the temptation his apostles and every believer who follows will experience the temptation to forget Christ's heart-calming promises when the pressures of this world bear down heavy upon us. The temptation to question their validity. The temptation to lean on our own understanding. To try to make sense of things according to our own wisdom. To even ask, did Jesus really say, do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful? Did Jesus really leave us with peace not as the world gives? Did I hear that correctly or was I mistaken? Did I remember it right? Am I making this up? I don't feel it. In fact, everything in this world Every experience, everything I see around me causes me to question that. That's the temptation and trouble. Look at verse 25. These things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you, and here's a key phrase, I have spoken to you while abiding with you. This has been the privilege these apostles have had for the last three years. Jesus abided with them. Jesus stayed with them and lived with them. He remained with them every day. He taught them and then taught them again and then taught them again. Every day he answered their questions. Every day he calmed their doubts, clarified their uncertainties. Every day he abided with them. Whenever trouble entered their heart, they could turn to Jesus right next to them. Whenever they doubted God's goodness and faithfulness, Jesus was right there, bringing them back to reality and faith. But all of that is about to change. In just a few hours, Jesus would no longer abide with them. Each of these men will no longer be able to talk with him when doubts creep in and hear from him when their faith begins to falter and be calmed by him when fear wells up inside as they had been able to do for the last three years. All of that's changing. These apostles are entering into a new phase of life, one without Jesus next to them. He's leaving them. It's no wonder they're troubled, they're afraid, they're losing their master, their guardian, their teacher. 
Where are they going to turn when everything in this world tells them to doubt God's goodness and Christ's faithfulness? Where are they going to turn? What are they going to cling to when their faith begins to falter? When they wonder, can God be trusted? Did Jesus really say? And quite frankly, this is the same question for us today. Where do we turn without Jesus by our side? What do we cling to when our faith becomes unsteady? And doubt begins to creep in and we begin to wonder, can God really be trusted in in this circumstance, in my trouble? That leads into the eighth heart-calming promise Jesus gives here. Here's promise number eight. When tempted to doubt Christ and question his faithfulness, when tempted to allow the hurts and pains and fears of this world to instill uncertainty in our Savior, we can be certain, be grounded, confident in our God and everything about him. Why? Because we have been given a Holy Spirit-inspired fully trustworthy, completely inerrant, absolutely sufficient word. We have been given a Holy Spirit-inspired word that will never fail us or lead us astray. Notice the promise in verse 26. There's a transition. It starts with a but... Yes, I'm leaving you, but I'm sending you someone. Yes, I will no longer be by your side to teach you and help you and sustain you and guard you, but I'm giving you another helper, another teacher, another guardian of your faith, another comforter for your sorrows, another strengthener for your weaknesses. Helper, parakletos. Same word back in verse 16. Remember that promise, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, another of the same kind, another helper, advocate, teacher, sustainer, that he may be with you forever. Jesus says, I'm leaving you, but the spirit is coming to you And yes, I was abiding with you. Verse 17, he says, the spirit will be in you. Well, Jesus builds on that promise now. And Jesus now adds verse 26, the promise here. He now adds what the spirit will do when the spirit comes to these apostles. How the spirit will help them and guard them and strengthen their faith. Here's how. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will, number one, teach you all things. He will give you special insight. And then number two, bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Like I taught you, Jesus says, the Spirit will teach you. And the Spirit will guide your memory 
He will remind you of my faithfulness. He will remind you of my works and my words, all that I said to you. He'll bring to your mind those things. He'll remind you of my promises. And so understand what Jesus now is promising these men. It's monumental. It's a monumental promise here. Jesus is promising that once he leaves them, they will be given special revelation through the Holy Spirit. Yes, they'll be given illumination, but this promise goes beyond that. They'll be given inspiration, inscripturation. We're going to develop this in a moment, but understand this is the first promise from Jesus, the first promise from Jesus to his apostles that there would actually be a New Testament. There'll be a New Testament. Back in verse 17, Jesus promised that the Spirit would indwell these men and every believer. And through that indwelling, that uniting of these men to the Trinity, they would share in that relationship, that security, intimacy, as a guarantee that their souls would be secured within the Trinity, Trinitarian relationships. All comes through the uniting work of the Spirit. Now Jesus promises them another work of the Spirit, the work of teaching, the work of reminding, the work of special revelation. This is Holy Spirit-given insight promised to these men and others like Paul and Jude and Luke who follow. They would be recipients in a special way of the Spirit's teaching ministry. Again, verse 26. He will teach you all things. Spirit will grant them special recall ability. The Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That is a promise that is a supernatural work. And all the husbands out here can relate. Because when your wife gives you a list of three things... You're lucky if you bring back two of them from the grocery store. You'll bring back more things, just not the things that are on the list. And it happens all the time. I forget the list in the car, and what's the thought? I got this. I'll remember. We're all there. But here's what, the, what Jesus promises. The Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Supernatural work. Now note here, again, just note how monumental this is. Jesus is promising something for these men and others, again, associates, to follow. He's promising something similar to what the Spirit did with the Old Testament prophets, the prophets who brought God's word to God's people. That's how monumental this promise is. Think of 2 Samuel 23. We read that the Spirit of Yahweh spoke by me. The Spirit of God gives divine revelation so that when the prophet speaks, the spirit speaks. And his word, the spirit's word, God's word was on my tongue. The spirit gave the Old Testament prophets special utterances, special words, special insight, so that when they spoke, God spoke. This is why Peter says in Acts chapter 1, 
the scripture had to be fulfilled. The scriptures, well, what are the scriptures? Well, the scriptures are those which have been written by the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David and then proceeds to quote two Psalms. So Peter is saying that when David wrote those Psalms and David wrote them, when David wrote those Psalms, he wrote the very words of God and he uses the the name Holy Spirit, superintended by the Holy Spirit. So you look back at the Old Testament, it's their words breathed out by the Spirit. Well, now on the heels of Jesus saying he's going to send his Spirit to these men, Jesus says to them, you, though you are fearful, amazing, though you are fearful and anxious. And look at verse, chapter 13, verse 36. Look at the, look at the promise that Jesus gives says, where I go, you cannot follow. Peter says, Lord, why can't I not follow? I'm gonna lay down my life. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me. No wonder Jesus, uh, Peter is troubled. You're fearful, you're anxious. But now, 26 verses later, Jesus says, you're gonna be used by the Spirit to bring God's word to God's people. Again, this promise, verse 26, is the first promise that there will be a Spirit-inspired, Spirit-breathed-out New Testament. Holy Spirit-given special revelation that will come through these men and those close to them. A revelation that corresponds to the Spirit-given revelation of the Old Testament. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that? Well, I want you to see how John understood this promise. The gospel writer here, how John understood this promise. I want you to see how John recognized his writing of this gospel, his writing of the gospel of John. He recognized that as a fulfillment of this promise in verse 26. And so underline the phrase, bring to your remembrance. That's the key phrase here, bring to your remembrance. There are only two other passages in this gospel where John uses this word remembrance. Two other passages. The first is John chapter two. You can turn there, John chapter two. John records Jesus' first Passover in Jerusalem as the anointed Messiah. John chapter 2, and you remember the statement. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, those were words no one, not even the apostles, no one understood what Jesus was saying at that time. And so John records verse 21. He, Jesus, was speaking of the temple of his body. That's an editorial note. At the time Jesus said that, the apostles did not understand Jesus' prediction. It's cryptic. Eventually, they came to understand Jesus' words and Jesus' words' significance 
The question, though, is why? Or how? Or when? Well, verse 22 tells us, so when he, Jesus, was raised from the dead, after Jesus resurrects, after Jesus ascends to heaven and sends his Holy Spirit, promised in, verse, in chapter 14, only then did his disciples, notice the next word, his disciples remember, remember, it's the same word Jesus uses in John 14. The Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance, same word, all that I said to you. So John records verse 22 in chapter two. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered, same word, remembered that he said this. How did John remember Jesus's prophecy? How? How did he remember, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up? How did John record this event accurately? How was John able to give the right interpretation of what Jesus prophesied? Answer? Answer according to John, it was through the work of the Holy Spirit, that special work promised in verse 26 of John 14. The Spirit taught John. The Spirit reminded John. And so John understands his writing of John chapter two and Jesus is cleansing the temple. He understands that as a fulfillment of the Spirit's teaching and remembering work promised in chapter 14, 26. That's the first passage where the word remember is used. There's a second passage, turn to John 12, John chapter 12. The second passage where this word is used, remember. Jesus has now entered Jerusalem for his final Passover, verses 12 through 15. Well, notice what John writes, another editorial note. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. They did not understand the significance of Jesus' entry when it happened. They didn't correlate it to the Old Testament promises. You see that in the passage. But when Jesus was glorified, resurrected, ascended, after he sent the Holy Spirit promised in John 14... After that, then they what? There's the word, remembered. Then they remembered. Same word. Same work of the Spirit. Then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Why did John record Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem? How did John remember what the crowd shouted? Answer, because the Spirit gave him remembrance, teaching, insight, revelation. Because Jesus' promise in John 14 came true. The helper, the Holy Spirit, taught him all things and brought to John's mind all that Jesus said. And the placement of these two passages, the placement of these two passages is key. 
John 2 describes Jesus' first Passover in Jerusalem. John sees the beginning of his gospel as a spirit-given revelation. And John 12 describes the final Passover in Jerusalem. John sees the end of his gospel as a spirit-given remembrance, spirit-given revelation. These remember passages, they bookend Jesus' ministry. And then John 14 explains the significance. You don't know the significance the first time you read it, but then you come to John 14 and all of it now makes sense. It's the spirit at work through John to breathe out his words. And this is why John can offer the capstone to his gospel. Look at John 21, rather John 20. Here's now the capstone. John 2, the Spirit gives utterance, memory. John 12, the Spirit is at work. And now, what is the capstone? John 20, 31, these have been, circle this word, written. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he uses the word written here. Why is that so significant? Because 10 times within his gospel, when the word written is used, grapha, when the word written is used, it refers to the spirit-inspired Old Testament scriptures. Think of John 1. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Same word. John 5, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he, through the Holy Spirit, Moses, through the Spirit, wrote about me. Same word. So the capstone here in chapter 20 is that the Spirit now has given John this needed revelation, remembrance so that John would pen John 2 and John 12 and everything in between. And all of it is grapho, grapho, scripture. And John is a man moved by the spirit, called to pen spirit-inspired, breathed out words. John knows what he's writing. Go back to John 14. John 14. That is the promise Jesus is giving his apostles in verse 26. So put it in the context. Do not let your heart be troubled. Though I am leaving you, another teacher is coming to you. No ordinary teacher. This is a divine teacher who will bring to your mind divine truth, who will teach you everything necessary for life and godliness. This is the spirit who will move you to write and move you to record my life and my words. Therefore, do not let your hearts be troubled. Though everything in this world will tempt you to doubt me and question my promises and question my faithfulness and my goodness, And though you right now are fearful that you will forget my words to you, be certain and be confident 
because the spirit I am sending to you will grant you special insight and a special memory and special teaching and you, like the prophets of the past, you will write my words for my people. It's the promise of verse 26. It's monumental. There will be a New Testament. In the words of Martin Luther, he wrote this, the word of God is the greatest, most necessary, and most important thing in Christendom. This is the God-breathed, spirit-given word. And Jesus is saying, you never need to doubt this. Never need to doubt it. Now, that's the promise in general. Just a general look at this. We can get a little bit more specific here. Let's answer a couple questions, really the why question. Why can we bring this promise now to us who hold this in our hands? Why can we trust everything in this book? Why can we trust this? When nothing in this world is certain and everything in this world tempts us to question God, everything in this world, why can we rest fully on what the Holy Spirit has inspired? Why can we believe it wholeheartedly? Everything we read. Well, Jesus gives two reasons here, two reasons in verse 26. The first reason is this. We can believe the scriptures wholeheartedly because the Spirit's inspired word contains no errors. The Spirit's inspired word contains no errors. We can trust the word because the scriptures are never wrong. Because the scriptures will never lead astray. The scriptures will never affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now, where do we see this promised in verse 26? Well, notice who the author of the scriptures will be. It's verse 26, it's the helper, the holy, the transcendent, the perfect, the spirit free from any sin or error or imperfection, the very spirit of God, the God who cannot lie. That's the helper. That's the one who will be at work. Look back at verse 17. Jesus says that the spirit is the spirit of truth, spirit of truth. And so the nature of the spirit guarantees the scripture's inerrancy, the nature of the spirit. He is the holy spirit of truth. But build on this, notice who Jesus says commissions the Spirit for this work of inspiration. Who commissions the Spirit? Verse 26, he is the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send. So everything that the Spirit inspires carries with it the same holiness and perfection of the Father. To which Jesus then adds, in verse 26, that the Father will send the Spirit on this inspiration mission. The Father will send him in my, Jesus' name. Spirit comes with Jesus' authority, Jesus' holiness and perfection. 
Turn to chapter 16. Jesus introduces this promise here. He'll build on this in chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus will drive this point home. Notice what he says when, verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Nothing the spirit utters will ever be false. And notice this will come through these men, those sinful men. But the Spirit will guard these words. These words will carry with them the Spirit's holiness. Why? How? Continue verse 13. For he, the Spirit, will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak. The Spirit's words are the Spirit's words. But they are not just his words. They're also the Father's words. Again, carrying with them the perfection of the Father. He hears. What he hears, he'll speak. He'll breathe out. Drop down to verse 15. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he, the Spirit, takes of mine my words that are also the Father's words. There are words and will disclose through the Spirit, will disclose it to you. So here's the implication. John 14, John 16. The inspired words contain no errors. No errors. The character of the Father demands Scripture's inerrancy since he sends the Spirit on this mission. The perfection of the Son demands Scripture's inerrancy since the Spirit's words come in Jesus' name. And the nature of the Spirit demands Scripture's inerrancy. Since the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And quite frankly, inerrancy is being denied all over the place within the church. All over the place. You might think, or some might think, well, you can, you can separate. We're, we're going to show that the Scripture may, may contain errors. Well, one, if that's the case, there's no hope in clinging to the scriptures because where are they? But to reject scriptures and errancy is not only an attack on the word, but according to Jesus, it is an attack on the Trinity because the Father has sent the Spirit on this mission in Christ's name and the Spirit himself is holy. Again, relate it back to Verse one, do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful in verse 27. Do not let the circumstances of this fallen world cause you to question God's word. Do not let the sorrows of this world cause you to doubt God's goodness. Do not let the ever-changing uncertainty of this world cause you to disbelieve God's purposes and promises. Why? Because everything the Spirit has given us is true and trustworthy. And it is perfect in its entirety. We can believe this with all of our hearts.
Back to chapter 14, there's one other reason, second reason we can believe the scriptures. Number two, because, can believe the scriptures because the Spirit's inspired word is sufficient. It is sufficient for all of life and godliness. It is sufficient for all of life and godliness. The scriptures we hold in our hand lack nothing we need. Now, they might not answer every question we have, but they lack nothing we need. And we see this in the middle of verse 26 where Jesus adds this, he, the spirit, will teach you all things, all things. That's repeated in chapter 16 that we just looked at. The spirit of truth will guide you into all the truth, all things, all the truths, truth in the sense of all things necessary, all things necessary to live a life of holiness and faithfulness. All things necessary to know enough of what God is doing to trust him. All things necessary to not let our heart be troubled or fearful. The scriptures contain either directly or implicitly, either by clear principle or deduced precepts, Scriptures contain all the truth we need to live a life of faithfulness. That's how monumental this promise is in chapter 14. The scriptures are sufficient for every hurt and ample for every uncertainty and enough for every trouble. Are you lacking holiness? Holiness. Faithfulness fruitfulness. Well, delight yourself in the scriptures. Meditate on the word. How blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What's the promise? He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. It's holiness, fruitfulness, faithfulness. It's meditation on the word. It's what the spirit does to us through the word. Are you in need of spiritual refreshment? I think all of us probably are. Wisdom and joy, do we need that? We're looking for that. Turn to the scriptures, the law, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The scriptures refresh us, give us wisdom, the joy, and the promises of our God. Are we in need of conviction of sin? Conviction of sin. Well, allow the scriptures to lay our hearts bare. Come before the word humble, for the word of God is living and it is active and it is sharp and it pierces and it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight. Come to the scriptures humble. The scriptures 
give the needed conviction of sin? Are you desiring to be sanctified into the image of Christ? Growing in Christ-like, is that your desire? Well, drink the scriptures. That's, that's Peter's image. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. The Spirit uses his scriptures to sanctify his people. We cannot separate the sanctification that the Spirit does from the scriptures he has inspired. One commentator put it this way, wherever it is allowed to have its intended result, scripture will secure for every believer continuous, growing, inward capacity and readiness for the accomplishment of everything pleasing to the Lord. You see how monumental this promise is in John 14. We lack nothing in the scriptures. Everything pleasing to the Lord is through them. It's sufficient, sufficient for all of life and godliness. And it's true, Christ is not by our side like he was for the apostles. But what is also true is we still have a divine teacher and a divine word. And though Christ will not speak to us audibly like he did for those three years with his apostles, we still have his spirit-inspired, inerrant, sanctifying, and sufficient word, his voice. And if you like to draw in your Bible, you can draw an arrow from verse 26 to then verse 17. You know him, the spirit, because he abides with you and he will be in you. Not only will the spirit inspire scripture, but now that spirit will be in us to illuminate our minds to that word. And he will sanctify us through that truth. How do we guard, how do we guard our hearts from the troubles of this world? by loving the word and reading the word, hearing the word, knowing the word, believing the word, clinging to the word, applying the word and living the word. It is only through the word that the spirit gives us Christ's peace. One theologian wrote this, we must continually remember that we have in the Bible God's very words. And we must not try to improve on them in some way. It's a tendency. But we must remember this cannot be done. Rather, we should seek to understand them and then trust them and obey them with all our hearts. This is promise number eight. When tempted to doubt Christ and question his faithfulness, when tempted to allow the hurts and pains to fill our hearts with anxiety and fear, we can be certain. That's unheard of in this world. We can be certain, grounded, confident in our God. Why? Because we have been given a Holy Spirit-inspired, fully trustworthy, completely inerrant, absolutely sufficient word that will never fail us and will never lead us astray.
Father, may you grow in us a greater love for your scriptures. We confess, Lord, that we do fail to see how monumental this revelation is. This is from you. Lord, give us that faithfulness to believe every word that you have written. Give us a humility to come before your word, trusting it and loving it, though it might say things that we don't like, though we might be looking for easier answers. This book is from you. And through you and all praise goes to you for it. And we humble ourselves in faith and obedience to this word, praising you for this great gift. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.